Welcome back, Signals from the Deep, episode nine. And we are recording this one on the heels of a great night. First win of the season last night for the Seattle Kraken. They put up a touchdown. I don't know if we are at CPA or Lumen Field. 7-4 win over a Stanley Cup contending Carolina Hurricanes. And that was just a huge performance. And how do we follow up a momentous occasion? We bring on an esteemed guest, Al Kaniski, the newest member of the Seattle Kraken broadcast team. 93.3 KJR was brought in to do fantastic color analyst work alongside the great Everett Fitzhugh. Al, thanks a lot for coming on, man. Thanks, man. Happy to be here. So I got to ask, we're going to get into the team. We're going to get into what you've thought and what you've seen. Mm -hmm. But before that, when you got the call, that is to at least have expressed interest in taking on the current role that you have right now with uh, with KJR and calling Kraken games. Um, what was the feeling when you first got that uh, when the when the phone rang? Well, I'll tell you, for a long time, I've led a dual life, a, a life of the, the corporate executive and a life of a hockey enthusiast and ho hockey fan. And I was in my, my corporate executive mode when I got the call. And the call came through and it was, uh, hey, I'm Rich Moore from uh, KJR and I understand you're interested in the color role with the Kraken. And I paused and said, how'd you get my number? <laughs> And he paused and kind of backed up a little bit and said, oh, I apologize. I, I thought you were interested in this role. And I quickly realized this was not a prank. Mm. This was not a spam call. <laughs> this was a real call. So we talked for a few minutes about it. And uh, of course, I expressed my interest, um, talked a little bit about my background and uh, started that process of, of going down the road and, and interviewing for the role. And, I, you know, it was... It was completely uh, unique from what uh, what I've gone through in the past, again, on the corporate side. I have had 10 years of experience doing this with the Everett Silvertips, but that was a very different process. They had lost their color person, and uh, I, I, I just stepped in. They, could, they, they needed someone right away. I gave them a quick uh, verbal resume on my background, and that, that was it. I was in. I was, I, was, I was a radio guy at that point. Mm -hmm. So I led that uh, dual life for a long time and uh, excited as heck to be back doing it again. Well, that's awesome, and I think a great place to really start in getting into getting to know you. So where did your love and passion of hockey begin? Well, like any Canadian kid uh, on the on the street in front of his house with uh, newspapers tied to your legs, if you were in net and uh, <laughs> staying out until the uh, street lights came on. No, ball hockey's huge, and 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 you know, in Canada, growing up, it's. Some might think it's forced, but you're, all your friends are doing it. Mm -hmm. So everybody starts skating early on. Everybody starts playing hockey early on because everybody's doing it. And so from a very early age, I started skating. And, you know, I, I always encourage parents listening, like, I've got a young child. I'd like to get them into hockey. What should I do? I figure skated for the first year and a half. Mm -hmm. And I thank my parents for doing that because by the time I was five years old and I started playing hockey with a stick in my hands, I was doing crossovers and I was skating backwards and kids were learning how to skate, but with a stick in their hands. So starting with skating, that kind of that, you know, learn, learn to walk before you run mentality really got me some confidence in playing the game early on. And so from an early age, uh, I started 
playing and and again you, all your friends are playing and then you realize I'm a little bit bigger than some of my friends and so <laughs> you start working your way up and the you're rank. still bigger than most of your friends <laughs> by the way six foot yeah four. yeah so that always helped and mm -hmm. uh, and you're always playing on the top line you're playing on the top team and 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 you realize probably around 13 14 15 I think I'm good at this game. <laughs> but, e but even at that point, I had no aspirations really of one day I'm going to get to the NHL. It was more just a, I really enjoy playing this. And, you know, going back to the game itself, I didn't watch a lot of hockey as a kid. You know, ask me who my favorite commentators were. Like, I can throw out guys like Don Cherry and Howie Meeker and those sort of things, Peter Puck. But it was really just short little, you know, 10-minute uh, spots where I'd sit down with my dad. We'd watch a little bit of a Canucks game. But I wasn't, hey, what time are they starting and watching it right. to start to finish. So I was more of a guy that wanted to play the game. And when I watched it, I would get excited, not necessarily for the team I was watching, but for playing the game. Mm -hmm. Thinking back to those days when you were younger playing ball hockey, I think back when I was younger and growing up with two older brothers, it was like weird time to go down and play shinny hockey in the basement. I got put in goal. They were the ones that were shooting the tennis sure, ball on sure. me. And yeah, I got a couple of welts that still might. Uh, You're youngest, have, right? So, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's why. And You're the youngest guy goes in net. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, so those were great memories. But but back in the day, were you kind of one of the guys that kind of took charge and, and was the uh, was the scorer? I tell you, I never played goal. Okay. We, I, I had a good friend that actually liked to play goal. Mm. So that, that was a quick, quick decision. <laughs> Perfect. And, uh, you know, he would stuff his shirt with sweatshirts. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't even know if he wore a helmet or a mask, but. <laughs> We would play till dark. Sometimes you'd hit him in the head with a, one of those orange hockey yeah, balls. Yeah, but yeah. but we played till dark a, a ton, and 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 it got pretty. You know, elbows got up, and mm -hmm. then, you know, stick slashes happened and stuff. And there were probably a few fisticuffs, but <laughs> <laughs> we were all friends at the end of the day. And yeah. and, and that, that that's just as big of a part of my growing up with hockey as as everything that happened on the ice. So we're gonna get into your. Um, uh, draft into the national yeah. hockey league uh, but but before that you've been involved in the game for four decades yeah. player coach now broadcaster can you kind of take us through just kind of from a thirty thousand foot point of view of of all the different roles and hats you've worn in yeah. the greatest sport in the world yeah well i mean like i said so i've given you kind of the zero to to, mm -hmm. to 15 uh, part of the story uh, when i was 16 um it was actually my parents that that uh, met a gentleman that was playing junior hockey in Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, we'd love to have a guy like Al on our team. Let me talk to the coach. And, you know, quickly uh, the summer went by and I was getting in this guy's pickup truck and driving across Canada to a little town called Nipawin in northern Saskatchewan, a uh, half hour north of Prince Albert for anybody that knows the area, a uh, town of 5,000. So going from Vancouver to just a town of 5,000 was a, a wake-up call mm -hmm. in itself. But that's what kind of got me on the trajectory of, hey, I'm no longer playing minor hockey in the city of Coquitlam. I'm actually on a path to play junior and retaining my college eligibility, which was important at that time because prior to leaving for Saskatchewan, so that was probably in August of 88, uh, I, I had a visit from uh, the coaching staff from the Seattle Thunderbirds, and that was Barry Melrose, and it was Russ Farwell. Wow. You know what, what what's going on with Barry presently, but you know what his career is like. Yeah. Um, and and Russ Farwell was the GM for the for the Thunderbirds, and they sat you know across me from the in, in our family living room and said, "We want you to come to Seattle." Wow. I didn't think I was ready at the time. Um, 
you know me a little bit. I, I tend to be a little more humble. Mm-hmm. Um, they both sat across and said, I think don't, don't sell yourself short. I think you can be here. I also wanted to retain that eligibility. Um, I had offers from colleges to, uh, to, for full rides. And I, so I, I had to put this kind of like thinking cap on and, and my parents, you know, I, I give them all the credit. They said, we're not going to make this decision for you because you're going to have to live with this decision for the rest of your life. But you have an opportunity for a full ride scholarship, or you have an off- opportunity to go to the Western hockey league. And at that time, the Western hockey league was where kids were getting drafted from. And that's when you know, I had to make that decision. So the way I made the decision was I'm going to retain my eligibility for one more year, go play in Saskatchewan, um, and, and stay on that path. Well, after that year, I had a good, I had had a good year, but it was, it was not the place I wanted to be. Uh, went to Seattle and now we're in the 89, 90 year and had a great year with Seattle. We got to the, uh, the, the conference championships. Um, Russ Farwell went on after that year to be the GM for the Philadelphia Flyers. And so the draft is actually in Vancouver that year. And some of the teams were talking to my dad and and saying, hey, we're interested now. He wouldn't tell me anything. I didn't know they were talking to him because he didn't want to set my expectations high. But because the draft was in Vancouver, Um, I live in the area. I said, yeah, let's go see it. Let's go see some of my teammates get drafted. Peter Nedved, first round, Turner Stevenson, guys that we were on this great Seattle team that I played on. And so I'm up in the stands. I wore a suit really out of respect for the draft. And when they called my name in the third round, I was shocked. So, so I never went to the draft expecting to get drafted, but you know, I came to find out later they had had conversations with my father about it, and uh, he had a uh, he had an idea that it might happen. How about then to the? Actually, I would lo- I would love to talk more uh, about that eighty nine season with yeah. Seattle. What was that like? So they were in a uh, transition. The the league in general, the team as well, mm-hmm. and what was happening there is they were losing players to the college route because there wasn't enough focus on education. And that was probably right up until maybe the 88, 89 season. And things started to change where they started offering uh, scholarships for players. And I know today it's a one for one ratio. You play a year, you get a year. Back then it was a financial uh, contribution to future schooling. But that wasn't a really big deal back then early on. and so. That's what started to change the mindset a little bit. The second thing that was that was huge is the team had a bonus program. You know, you win a couple in a row, you get a little bit of money. You win a couple more, that money increases. But if you miss class, the whole team loses their bonus. And so now you've got 19 and 20-year-olds talking to 17-year-old Al Kaniski, which, you know, <laughs> at that age feels like the guy's 20 years older than yeah. you are, saying, don't you miss class yeah. or there'll be problems. Accountability. <laughs> Accountability. Right? Yeah. And, you know, I, 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 I love that policing method. I, I, I use it today with my own kids. Well, mm-hmm. my kids are older, but I used to use it. Um, and so the focus became more on school for the kids. And what, the, what started happening is parents that were concerned about their, their child, A, getting drafted, but B, having another path to go on after hockey, started thinking maybe the WHL is for me. And so that's where things started to change in that regard. I think the second part of that question is, is that, the team itself was doing really well. And so to be on a good team in the Western Hockey League, which was doing most of the drafting to the NHL, 
that just raised your odds of, of getting to that professional level. So right. those were the probably the two factors that made me decide to go there. And then when you did hear your name called in the 90 draft, yeah. third round, 52nd overall, Philadelphia Flyers, what was that moment like? You know, it, it was... Uh, it was shocking because I, I had no idea. I was not expecting it. Um, I, I thought I was there to watch my teammates get drafted. And so went down, did all the handshaking, did the jersey, got pictures with the other. Philadelphia actually had, I think, six or seven uh, picks in those first three rounds. So got pictures with all the guys, um, with the brass, and, and just soaked it all in. Um, I've got, you know, this is a time where nobody had phones or cameras or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. So I've got very few pictures of that day. Most of the memories are up in my head. But uh, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was humbling, exciting, shocking, and you know, it was like a line where, that I drew in the sand that said, "Everything's different from now on." Mm -hmm. You know, now now this that now there's an opportunity for this to become uh, a profession. And it was uh, an injury, yeah, to the knee, yeah. Um, that uh, um, kind of forced a change in your life. Uh, what was that experience? I mean, I'm, for as humble and well-spoken and as kind as you are, um, I'm sure that that kind of had a, a big influence. I mean, obviously with your you know, not being able to play anymore, right. but um, you know, kind of on your life in general. But what was like going through that and coming to terms with, hey, my body isn't allowing me to do what I've always wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, the mentality even today as a hockey player is battle through it, mm -hmm. battle through adversity, battle through pain. And, and we were playing a game uh, at the start of my second year. So first year of camp was just a come have the experience. You're, you're a young 18 year old. Not many kids made the team that, that back then. So they would send you back to junior. So the first year was just go through the experience, get the experience. Going back to Seattle early on in the season, I took a hit from a player from my left side that 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 his shoulder hit my knee on the left side, and your knee's not supposed to bend that way. Yeah. And so I went down, winced, got off the ice, finished the game, went to practice the next day, and every single time I took a slap shot where you wrap your left left leg around the back in the in the follow through that's when I had this wincing pain. And so I went and did the MRI and I had an MCL tear down, down the outside of my knee. And so, uh, I, I, uh, went through therapy. I went through rehab. It just never got back to a hundred percent. And when you know what it's supposed to feel like, and it never feels that way, it's frustrating because you feel like you're doing all the things, right. You're icing, you're rehabbing, you're stretching, you're strengthening, and it just never got back to wh where it was. And so, uh, the game took a step backwards, went to camp the following year as a, as a 19 year old, um, and came back to Seattle as a 19 year old was traded up to Lethbridge, played the, finished the year as a 19 year old there. And, and, uh, then finished uh, as a 20 year old back at tier two in Surrey. Um, and, and I think it was probably the end of that 20 year old season where I realized this path of a professional hockey career is probably not going to happen. Yeah, I could have gone and played in the ECHL and, and, and maybe worked my way up there. But knowing that that knee was not 100% made me always question, am I going to be able to get there with it? And then as a transition, um, maybe there was some time uh, as you made kind of the transition into the real world or the corporate world, as you had put it. Um, 
I was on your LinkedIn page as I was doing some reconnaissance mm-hmm. and man, oh man, you wear a lot of hats or at least have worn yeah. a lot of hats. And I'm just going to take our fantastic listeners through it for a second. Global commercial real estate and data center executive, M&A integrator, program manager, strategic sourcing leader, financial analyst, and business partner in search of new challenges. I mean, that is more than I could even imagine. <laughs> so when you hear all of that and yeah. all of the things then you've been able to transition to into the corporate world, into the real world, um, kind of take me through that process as how you got into it and uh, some of the different responsibilities that you've had amidst those titles that you've held sure. over your over your corporate career. Well, you know, I, I'll start with my boys and answering the question and they're 19 and, and 22 right now. They're almost to where I was when this whole thing started, when this resume started getting built. And when when the hockey career ended, I I was living with my, my girlfriend in the Seattle area and she and I are still married today, um, but I couldn't work legally. And so I started using some of that scholarship money that I'd, I'd received from Seattle and did two years of community college in Bellevue. But I was frustrated because I wanted to work. Like up until that point, every day was get up, work out, shoot pucks, go to practice. It's just that mentality. And all of a sudden you're like, you're in a classroom every day and you're like, this, this doesn't feel right. And I knew that for me to be able to work, I had to be able to marry my wife or marry my girlfriend and, and do it legally. And one day I was sitting in the, uh, living room with my soon to be father-in-law and I was, I was showing my frustration. Like I, I, I want to be able to be a contributor. I want to be able to work. And he said, I think you got to marry my daughter. <laughs> and so I, I, I never really asked for his permission. He gave it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, soon after that we got married and the second we got married, now I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, 23, 24 year old. I've got a couple of years of, of community college, but I don't have a degree and I'm ready to work. And so I had some initial jobs where, and I credit my father-in-law for helping me uh, get them in the area where I was a salesperson for, for a, a trust building company, you know, trusts on, on residential homes. And the, the, uh, the, the training for the job was go work out in the yard and learn how to build trusses. So I'd be out there at 6 a.m. with all the grizzly veterans and <laughs> cigarette hanging out of the corner of their mouth. And, hard work. You know, and at lunchtime, there might, there might have been a little uh, extracurricular activity that now is legal in the state of Washington going on. And I quickly realized, I don't think these are my people. I don't think this is, this is where my career is going. And so... Uh, Back then, I'm going to date myself. I started looking at the newspaper, and there was this article of best places to work. And one of the companies was a software company. And so I'm like, well, why is this the best place to work? And I'm reading through, and it's like they serve or they offer their employees free sodas. Free sodas? Yeah. What a treat. That's good enough you know? for me. I think they get, we got some free sodas here, right, Grant? With a Kraken? I just got to go over to the bar and grill. Okay. Yeah. Thank there you, you go. 32 will hook you up. Yeah. And Moriarty. Get you all hooked up. <laughs> Is this a segment where we're going to throw a sponsor? <laughs> Not a sponsor. Maybe we should uh, start getting that ad money. That would there. be yeah. great because that would help with the uh, incredible truffle fries that I get oh, just about every time I'm there, oh, yeah. whether it's a salad or a chicken sandwich. I always got to get a size of truffle fries. Well, 
quick story. I, I don't I don't like walking into this building in the morning because it always smells like bacon and eggs. And I, and I know I'm not seeing any of it. <laughs> That's so. dangerous. So free soda yeah. at the software For, So free soda. So yeah. best place to work. And so I'm telling my father-in-law this. And I said, I found this company that, that offers free soda. I'd love to work. Well, it turns out he knows the head of HR there. Mm. Um, and he says to me, they've got an opening. Now, now it's not much, but it's a facility specialist. I'm like, I'll take it. He goes, well, I haven't even told you like anything about it. Or I said, I'll, I will take it because it's indoors. It's free soda. Um, it's a it's a corporate job. But I I, I didn't know anything about it. Well, it was nineteen thousand dollars a year, and the temp, the company was about a hundred employees, and I reported to the CFO. And the first day I go in there, I sit down with the CFO, and he's like, uh, I'm not really sure what you need to do here. Hey, tell you what, make sure all the uh, refrigerators have sodas in them. Yes, <laughs> I get to put all the refrigerators in the soda. <laughs> one for me, two in the refrigerator, yeah, one right. for me. Yeah. And he goes, in that Rubbermaid cabin over there, why don't you put that together? On it, boss. And so I really leaned into this role. And, and what I tell my boys, who again are close to that age, is lean into every job you have because there are opportunities that come up. And if you're the guy that scoots away when something needs to be done, you're not going to get that experience. I wasn't that guy. So what happened is this company started growing and they needed an office in Denver, Colorado. And they were like, well, Al's the facilities guy. Al, can you get us an office? Yep. Audit. And I didn't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I would talk to brokers and we would get it sorted out. And now I was managing projects where we were building out offices. I was reviewing leases. I was working with attorneys. And that's how this whole career that you just read out got started, where I was putting myself in a position in companies that were growing rapidly that just constantly needed new things and asking who could do these, and I was putting my hand up. And so the uh, dot-com bust happened. All of a sudden, I was without a job, but I'd had five or six years of working in this environment. And a friend of mine said, hey, there's this bank in Seattle called Washington Mutual. And he said, they are growing rapidly and they need guys with project management experience. I'd had that. So I went and started a job there for seven years. Now I'm doing project IT project at work at Washington Mutual. I'd always worked on the real estate and facility side, but about six years into that role, an old boss from my original job called me and said, Hey, there's this company called Concur that uh, is looking for a global real estate and facilities guy. And he said, you should talk to him. And I thought, oh, no, things are going great with Washington Mutual. This place is taken off. <laughs> Anybody that knows what happens to Washington Mutual knows where the humor is there. And he goes, no, no, go talk to him. Go talk to him. So I went and talked to him, took the job. And it was about six months later, Washington Mutual announced, you know, that they were going out of business and the stock mm -hmm. was plummeting. Well, I had sold every share of stock I, I, I had with Washington Mutual when I left and bought Concur stock all about timing timing and luck yeah. you know i'm not, i'm not a financial genius but it was it was definitely luck and i always believe in investing in the companies you're working for so did a bunch of time with concur 13 years again growing company more real estate and facilities experience they're like let's give this guy procurement he can run procurement let's just give this guy global uh, a real or security let's give him the trial all these operational roles of a company started coming my way and i just built out this role 13 years later, SAP comes in and says, we're going to buy Concur for hundred and something dollars a share. Everybody's shares immediately vest. Anybody that's been there more than 10 years does really well. And then I do six years with SAP. And uh, that takes us right up to the phone call I got uh, wow. a month ago. Wow. I've always been so interested in life 
after sport yeah. for athletes of all sports, um, of all genders, of all ages, um, whether you go on to play 20 years professionally or yeah. not, but especially hockey, since both of us have been involved yeah. in it our entire lives. How do you think that playing the game and being involved in the game of hockey helped your corporate career? Oh, I talk about it all the time. Um, one of the fortunate uh, parts of, of, of my position um, over the past few years has been able to speak at conferences. And one of the things I talk about a lot is the value of sports and life. And it doesn't mean you're not going to be successful if you don't play sports, but I encourage parents to encourage their kids to play sports. And ideally, you play a individual sport and you play a team sport because they teach you different things. Mm -hmm. um, I can say from my experience, I didn't. I played hockey in the winter and I played the cross in the summer and it was just easy. We went back and forth. But now being a pretty avid golfer, I see the benefits you get from an individual sport. It could be swimming, it could be golfing, but uh, playing that, 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 that individual sport where it's just you. Yeah, you could blame the ball, you could blame the clubs, but nobody around you caused you to hit that bad shot. Whereas in hockey, you might've gotten a bad pass. You might be on a bad line. So I, I think those skills that, that, that you develop in sports, the adversity, the discipline, the you know getting up at 5 a.m. for practices, the, like I said, playing with a team, carry right over to the corporate world. And so what I started seeking in the corporate world is I started seeking line mates. I started seeking teammates. I started figuring out who, is, who are my team members. And I would treat them like team members. And, you know, being captains of many of the teams I played on, I started to feel like, I think I'm gonna captain this team. Well, that's kind of what project management is, is you bring a bunch of people together, just like on a hockey team that don't know each other. They all have different skills. You figure out which, which people work best together. Those are your lines and you have a common goal. Now it might be building a, a, a building or it might be going after a cup, but you have a common goal. And that's essentially what project management was. And so it felt very natural to me to go into that, that world. But through my entire career, I always look for team members to work on things together because that just feels so natural. So the short answer to your question mm -hmm. is all those skills with hockey transfer directly over to the corporate world. And for maybe young people that are listening that may have interest in hockey or business or mm -hmm. corporate world, is there any type of characteristics that you look for um, in young people or, you know, in those jobs where you were in charge of managing people or situations or projects and, and there were certain qualities in, in, in folks that you really looked for that kind of did help make the job yeah. that much better? Well, I mentioned it earlier, that that, that lean-in mentality. Mm -hmm. um, never be afraid to take on something new, especially if it's being offered to you because you get you get a little extra runway to make some mistakes. I, I once had a, uh, a mentor of mine say, when you do make a mistake, you're now the most valuable person in the room because you learn from that mistake. And now it's your job to go talk to other people about what happened, why it happened, why it went wrong, and make them better. And so that... that uh, that mentality of taking risks has been uh, a big part of, of my career. I think that, you know, the, the, the skills that I talked about with hockey or sports in general, um, they can help you from the standpoint of 
trying new things, uh, not not being you know, not being uh, concerned about uh, making a mistake. Those are probably the two biggest ones I I constantly bump into uh, in the corporate world now. Three decades in Seattle. Yeah. Now there's an NHL team here. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. What have the Kraken meaned to this city in your eyes? This city to me has always had a hockey community. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I've been a part of it. That community has grown, has slowly grown over the past three decades that you just mentioned. In the past five years, six years, seven years, whatever the point in time when Seattle first got a sniff that there might be a chance that we'll get a pro hockey team here, it was putting gasoline on that fire, on that community. All of a sudden, I'm getting phone calls from people that I have not met before, but they know somebody I know. Mm-hmm. And we're getting together in a hotel room in, in Bellevue, and we're talking about this possibility that a team could be coming and what could we do to, to help that along. We're having conversations, we're going to meetings, we're going to rallies. And it was, it was so awesome to see that small community come together in an attempt to have an effect on this team coming to town. And fast forward to where we are right now, that community has grown tenfold in that time and it continues to grow. And and that's just exciting to hear. When you got into broadcasting, I'd love to know how that kind of exactly came to be Yeah, um, with the Everett Silvertips, yep. right? Uh, being their color analyst. Um, how did that come to be? Um, what was that process sure. like? And maybe when you think back at some things that you learned or or people that you met back then that kind of uh, inspired you to do it? Well, I'll, I'll tie it back to what we just talked about is mm-hmm. that lean-in mentality. I talked about it from a corporate world, but you know, from a broadcasting standpoint, I had just got the opportunity to go work at Concur. I was at Washington Mutual. Mm-hmm. And the first day I got over there, I'm doing the meet and greets. I'm meeting my team. I've got five or six people that report to me. And one of the guys that reported to me, I'll, I'll, I'll name him Dan Todorov because I give him credit all the time for it. He were literally walking around saying, well, this is where your office is going to be, Al, and this is where the, the, the soda fridge is. And well, I got to keep an eye on the soda fridge. And he says, oh, hey, by the way, he goes, uh, the Everett Silvertips are looking for a color guy, and I think you'd be great for it. And I said, wait a second, I'm just starting this job here. He goes, no, 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 no. He goes, they'll be real flexible with your schedule. And I said, what does that mean exactly? He goes, well, go talk to them and find out. Lean in. Mm -hmm. So I reach out and go talk to them. And they basically say, uh, we're looking for a guy that can do as many games as possible. I said, I've got a job. I've got a Monday through Friday job. Sometimes there's travel. And they said, we will take you for as many games as we can get. Of course, I went through my background. They understood I knew the game, but I'd never done any broadcasting before. And so I meet uh, Keith Gerhardt, who was the play-by-play announcer at the time. Super nice guy. He's happy to have me. And and as is often the case, not to take anything away from Everett Fitzhugh or anybody else, but broadcasters tend to be broadcasters most of their life. Some of them have played it a little bit, but they haven't played a long time like you or I have. And 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 that doesn't seem to be that common of a role for, for uh, post-pro career players. Uh, they tend to be more color analyst guys. So... Uh, they liked having a guy in the booth that had played the game and i had no experience doing this and so i said hey kid gloves 
be gentle with me, but uh, you know, what do I do? And so uh, a good friend of mine, Chris Sariato, who likes to make uh, fun of me, says, I remember listening to your first game where, uh, where Keith threw it to you between whistles and said, uh, Al, what's it going to take for the Silvertips to pull this one out? And I said, I think they got to score more goals. <laughs> I mean, you're true. I mean, that is 100% truth, to be honest. I mean, that is that's groundbreaking analysis, but so it's the truth. Come, you know, so, so safe to say that uh, I didn't do very much game prep for that first mm-hmm. first game, and I've since learned that uh, getting, getting there, you know, a couple hours ahead of time, sitting down with some notes, making some notes, uh, now putting those notes on my phone uh, only helps you uh, kind of be more colorful, colorful during the game. And so that's changed a lot, obviously. But I would only do the home games. Every once in a while, I would go up to Vancouver. My family's still up there, and I might do a game up in Vancouver. Every once in a while, I might get, go with the team on the bus down to Portland. But again, I had a day, I had a Monday through Friday job, and I fit this in around that job. And so... I would do, you know, in a 72-game season, probably 40 games a year um, plus playoffs. Right. And, and, and so it was enough to get me kind of uh, hooked on it. It was enough to get the experience doing it, but it wasn't going to take away what was paying the bills. How about broadcasting um, idols or, 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 or at least maybe nowadays that you like? Because yeah. yeah. when you were growing up, there really wasn't you right. know, that much. But any broadcasters that you... Uh, enjoy watching or listening to now that you maybe kind of pull some things from or people that you just enjoy to watch? Well, I tell you, I, I, I listen to uh, hockey on the radio on Sirius all the time mm-hmm. now, and I actually listen for the color commentators because of the role I'm in now. Mm-hmm. I want to I, I want to hear how they do the game, how they interact with their with their play-by-play guy. Um, I listened to a great interview the other day uh, with, with uh, Kenny Albert, yeah. and obviously he's got a big, big uh, story to tell in, yeah. in terms of his broadcasting career, but... I, I I'm much more interested in it now than maybe I ever was. Right. It was it, previously it was just like a hobby that I enjoyed doing. Um, f- but as far as broadcasters go, people that I love listening to, uh, I'll go NFL. I, I I love listening, and they're not together anymore. But I used to love listening to Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth. Uh, some people don't like them, but I just thought that the way they fit together on the broadcast, it was a one plus one equals three scenario. And that's the way I think about it with, with with Fitz and I is that I don't want to just you know double the benefit. I want I, I want I want us to be more than two together on the radio. And if we are, then I feel like we're doing our job. And so when I listen to broadcasters now, is the color guy stepping on the broadcaster? Is is he not on the same page with the broadcast? Are they arguing during the game, mm-hmm. or are they enjoying this? Is, does it feel like as the listener? You're sitting next, you know, between them on the couch watching a hockey game. That's kind of what the, the mentality I have now. So I look for broadcasters now that, that that approach the game the same way. And what about your broadcasting style? Like, what when you're watching the game, does your mind go more? Now you're going to let the game dictate yeah. what you say, and and obviously, but how do you, if you had to say or explain or describe how you see the game? Um, or when you're breaking it down, what things you kind of more tend to go f- towards and to try and uh, break down and talk about for our great fans out there? How would you describe your broadcasting style from a color analyst perspective? I, I definitely see the game like yourself through through a player's eyes. Mm-hmm. And where that becomes difficult from a broadcasting standpoint is uh, 
when I'm looking at the play, I'm glancing at where the puck is, and then I'm looking around the rest of the ice trying to anticipate where that puck's going. And so I think that's helpful from a broadcasting standpoint. But sometimes I'll find myself keying in on something uh, that's away from the play that I might want to talk about, and then a goal is scored. And I'll look at Fitz and go, I'm not sure who put that puck in the net. Obviously, he's going to tell me here in a second, but I'm quickly trying to find the replay so I can talk about it. But the reason I'm looking away from the play is I'm trying to see other things that are developing that maybe the fan doesn't see because they are focusing on the play, uh, which, which all fans do. So I'm looking for the things that are going on away from the play that I can talk about. Sometimes that's, a, that's an educational opportunity. Sometimes that's just, just some additional content opportunity that helps fans understand what's going on with the other nine players on the ice that don't have the puck. So that's the approach I take to it is how can I, how, how can I help the person in their car at home listening that might not have a TV on see the game better than, than they would if they, just, if they knew more than what was going on besides the person that had the puck? You've mentioned Everett a couple times. Yeah. Uh, we're going to give a great shout-out to our guy, Mikey B., Mike Benton as well. Does a great job with KJR as the uh, host of all Crack It Everything on 93.3 KJR. Uh, what's it been like working with those guys? Yeah. Working with Everett every game and, and, and Mikey as well. Uh, those guys bring a lot of energy. There's few people more passionate about hockey and the Seattle Kraken than those guys yeah. and adding yourself into the mix. But... Uh, what's it been like to work with them so far and, and the camaraderie that you guys share both on and off the air? So I'll, st I'll start with Mike Benton. So I mentioned uh, Keith Gerhardt is my first play-by-play -play announcer. Mike Benton was my last play-by-play -play announcer with the Silver Tips. And I started to get a complex because every two years I'd get a new one. And, 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 and Mike was the last one. And, and it was actually me leaving that time uh, after that 10-year span. And, and he likes to joke that it was something to do with him. But it was not. It was a family issue. So uh, Mike and I had a great year together my last year in, in Everett. And, and uh, his style is different than the other three guys that I worked with. And so we, you know, we... we we had a good run together. We did some playoff games. We did some road trips, and, and we built that same camaraderie that now Everett Fitz, you and I are doing. And you know, Fitz is he's 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 a man of the people. Yeah. Uh, the mayor, the mayor, Everett Fitz, you everybody. <laughs> we uh, we we did our first road trip uh, last week, and we had an opportunity to go to uh, one of the staff's uh, childhood homes, and and his family put a great spread out for us, and. Fitz said multiple times over that evening, which I completely agree with, he doesn't care who it is. He likes being around family. And, and you could invite him to his house. He'll come over. He'll bring, he'll, he'll bring a bottle of wine, and he'll be happy to be there just around family. And I think that, you know, my experience with hockey is the same, that you spend so much time on the road with, with the guys, and, yeah. and you appreciate that. But at the same time, you're all away from your families. And when you get an opportunity to, to go back and sit with a player's parents, sit with a staff's parents, and, and they put a great spread out for you, it just feels like home. And yeah. when you miss home a little bit, that feels so good. So uh, Everett called that out, out, out a couple of times. But he is, he is an easy guy to work with. He gives uh, great feedback. He asks for feedback. And so uh, the, the I've described it to others before. It's like dancing. He's a good dancer. I'm a good dancer. But we need to learn how to dance together. 
And so the only way you get better at that is by practicing. And, you know, we've got the preseason going on. We're now five games into the regular season. And I feel like our dancing is getting better each game. At what point do you think, um, and obviously I know there's always growth to go as far as chemistry between broadcast partners, but was there like uh, X amount of games in where you started to kind of feel comfortable? Yeah. And, and Because the biggest thing when, when working with a, with a play-by-play guy or gal is to know their cadence and when they're going to stop yes. so you can jump right in yes. and make your point and then get out while also realizing and keeping your eye on the play, knowing that if there's a quick chance that happens, you got to, for lack of a better phrase, shut up. Yep. So that way the play-by-play can continue and actually make the call, especially on radio. On yes. TV, you can get away with it a little bit because at least the audience has the ability to watch and see. But especially on radio, that's why, I mean, I think color radio analysts is, is one of the hardest, one of the very toughest and hardest jobs. Um, but was there, has there been a time yet where you've been like, okay, we got this down? Yeah, no, I, I and I stepped on his toes last night. Uh, and the thing is, is that my background in broadcasting focused a lot more on the between whistles commentary. Right. And not to say that, you know, Mikey Benton wouldn't, wouldn't let me talk during the play, but that was just the cadence we had. Whereas Everett's more of a guy where he wants to have a conversation during the game. And to your point, that's great that we're having a conversation, but there's also a hockey game going on that someone's listening to that wants to know what's going on. And so when I'm watching the game and and he's calling it, he'll put pauses in when the puck goes back into the, into Seattle zone and maybe the lines are changing and he'll pause. And I know now that's an opportunity for me to comment on something that maybe I saw. but. The question then becomes for me is, if I saw it a minute and a half ago, right. am I still going to comment on it? Because it happened a minute and a half ago, even though I thought it was a big hit or a smart play or a great save. And so I'm always kind of like loading up my, 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 my gun to say, is this the time to let to shoot that one off? And, and so that's part of the challenge is, is, is knowing if it's still relevant or not. But Fitz will do that. He'll, he'll intentionally pause to let me jump in. And so uh, I'm speaking more with Fitz than I've ever done before with any brother broadcaster. Yeah. As we now transition to that part of the episode where we're going to talk about the team. Mm, yes. And wow. What a win. Yeah. Last night against the Carolina Hurricanes at Climate Pledge Arena. 7-4. A touchdown and a point after, I should say, because a touchdown is only six points, right? That's right. right. They got That's the extra right. point. I think. Yeah. Okay. I just yeah. want to make sure I... I got that correct because sometimes when I say touchdown after scoring six goals, everybody's like, "What about the seven? Like, well, that's the point after the PAT. Got the kick too, yeah. right? I just I don't wanted. know a lot about uh, touchdowns this year with uh, the way the Broncos are playing. So yeah, that's, I'm not a good yeah. not a good person to ask. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but how about your thoughts on the on the very first win uh, for the Kraken last night and all of, all the things they did? Well, I'll tell you, you know, the the the, the first uh, four games of the season. I saw progression, and and yes, they, they they weren't wins, but I saw progression. And I think from a coaching standpoint, you know, you, which which I've done, you're always looking for that progression from your team, and and obviously you hope that it leads to wins, mm-hmm. but it hadn't over those first four games. And and you know, Coach Hackstall made a couple of minor tweaks. He flip flopped a couple of wingers. He made a minor changes to the power play, but he didn't do it all at once. And I think that's a sign of a, a of a smart coach that doesn't you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so after those couple tweaks, you could see it last night in, in the way they played that, that the urgency was there a little bit more, the intensity was there a little bit more. 
and you started to see success on the power play. You saw the shorthanded goal scoring five on five. Like and after the first period, Fitz and I talked and and said that's a textbook first period. You know, you're uh, you're doing everything right. Uh, goaltending was great. You know, uh, up until that point. So. I think the team played a textbook game last night. Yeah, you could say, well, you let you let four pass, but you know, I would rather win game seven four than one nothing because it, it, it's just too risky to hope that your goaltender is going to put up a shutout or only only let in one goal in a game. So, right. yeah, they'd like to get that four down a little bit, but the fact they put up seven. Uh, that's going to give them so much more confidence going into uh, tomorrow's game. And finally, the execution's there. Yep, because for all the people that might have been a little bit worried about ah, they're not never going to score more than one goal, but you, know, you just felt for all the chances that they were generating is that this team was too skilled then to just have it continue where you only had three goals for the first four games, and I felt like it was only a matter of time. And I kind of thought about this analogy on the, on the way home. Um, it's kind of like when you got like a nice zit on your forehead. Right. And you're just waiting for that thing to pop. And then when it pops, you feel a lot better. And then you can kind of go on about your day. Um, and I really think, as gross as that analogy might be, <laughs> um, the Kraken can now just kind of reset. You got a clean slate. They feel good about themselves right. as far as the confidence goes on the execution. But they did more than enough as far as generating chances-wise uh, in those first four games. And it was only a matter of time. And so yeah. now you get the jumping-off point. You get the confidence builder and putting up seven against one of the league's very best teams and hopefully carrying that confidence uh, into Saturday's game uh, against the New York Rangers. Um, how about goaltending-wise from what, you have, what you've seen so far this year? Philip Grubar, Joey Decord plays great last night, though he gave up four, a couple of them he had no chance yeah. on. But goaltending uh, as a whole between Gruby and Joey, what have you seen? I, th I think I would describe it as uh, a solid above average, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a level i think both goaltenders are are putting themselves in positions where they could handle any team on any night and i think that from a from a, a staffing perspective from a team perspective you always want that in your goaltenders you don't want an a and a b you want you want two a's or mm -hmm. you know two b blesses and, and, and i think that that uh, both gruby and and and, and decord have showed that over the last few games um i think that you're going to see uh, joey sprinkled in throughout the season um, we were having a great conversation about this earlier, and uh, you know I can't uh, I can't uh, prove it just yet, but it, I think you and I talked about it. Is the teams tend to know which goaltender is going to play quite quite a bit in advance? They look at this, the entire schedule and they say, okay, we want Gruby here, we want Gruby here, we want to put the court in for this one, we want maybe he's got two, or, and they go through the season and they kind of lay it out where okay, it's uh, you know fifty five and whatever the remainder is. I'm not great at math, but. You're never going to see a goaltender play all 82 games, and it's not because Gruby's hurt or Gruby's benched or the coaches are upset. It's just because that's the balance that yeah. puts you in a position, if you're lucky enough to make the playoffs, to have two goaltenders that could go any single night. So, so far, you know, the sample size is still pretty pretty small, but so far from what I've seen, uh, the Kraken have that. And with the schedule coming up, too, where yeah. you got the Rangers and then Detroit, and then you go to southern florida you yep. got carolina mixed in there yep. so there's going to be some big games coming up so i couldn't agree more there's always going to be that split where your starting goaltender is playing 55 or 60 games and that's why it's that much more important to have a goaltender in the backup variety that when they come in they're going to give the team a chance to win and that the guys are going to feel confident 
playing in front of. And I think that's what they found in Joey Decord. Plus, being like a third defenseman yeah. when Joey's playing, yeah. being able to play the puck. Too. Dish, dishing the puck up. Yeah, that's exactly a, it's a great analogy. It's like having three guys back there because he's so he's so strong on the puck that, uh, yeah, you don't want to get bad habits as a winger where you're only coming back to your own blue line mm-hmm. looking for a pass from your yeah. goaltender. But, you know, on a change situation, sometimes you can catch the other team sleeping if you can get a puck up to the far blue line quickly from your goaltender. So that's a real asset for for Joey out there. Um, and, and I, I agree more. I think that, that the, the team has more confidence mm-hmm. when they know that it doesn't matter who's back there. Uh, they, 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 they have confidence in their goaltender. And then I also think the goaltender that that's in there as well, whether it's Gruby or, or Decord isn't thinking, well, I'm playing tonight cause this is a weaker team. No, you're playing cause we want you to play and you're the guy tonight. So I think both of those things have to be true. And if they are true, then you just end up with a great uh, mentality going into the game. Grant, how about your thoughts? On the uh, on the big win last night. Well, I, you always love seeing seven goals, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. The the big thing for me is um, I was really excited to see uh, Belmar come in. Mm. Um, he was one of my favorites when I was yeah. uh, living in Denver watching uh-huh. him play. Right. It's just an exciting player. You know, he's got that energy about him. And then a shorthanded goal is always, I think, beautiful. one of the most exciting things yes. you can see. Yes. So, beautiful. And it was a, just a juicy rebound, and he did exactly what we needed to do to get it. So yeah. um, that was my favorite part of the night. You always love seeing that. I think that's what energizes the team, especially yeah. seeing it right at the end of a period like that. I mean, what better way to go? And he's come in and just fit perfect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like like the best fitting glove you could find. Yeah. And for a guy that's been around as long as he has, 38 years old, mm-hmm. he's played on some great teams, and to come into the room and be – unapologetically himself he's a presence um you know i've you know you know ran into him a few times in the locker room here and mm-hmm. there and and he is um he's probably one of the most energetic hockey players i've seen yeah. i mean more than you know guys that are 18 19 so it's, yeah. it's a really good to see him around so. he, no he knows his role he gets it pk's been great sitting at about 93 percent right now and was perfect through four yep. games and he is a huge part of that and will be a big part of the face-off department, which has looked right. significantly better this year. And it's not just him winning the face-offs, a career 52-ish percent, but also him helping the younger guys. Every day after practice, every after every morning yep. skate, uh, he's out there. Dave Lowry, assistant coach, is dropping pucks, and he's working with Matty Beniers. He's working with some of the other young centers. Ty Cartier was taking some face-offs yep. after the morning skate, too. So to have a guy like that, almost like another coach, um, i.e. Mr. Reggie Dunlop. Right. Have another have another <laughs> have another player coach. But to have Belly there, um, to be able to give all the experience and all the knowledge that he has, both playing and off the ice, is so invaluable. So I think you bring up a great point, uh, yeah. Grant. Any thoughts yeah. on, uh, on Pierre yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I was I was excited to see him score last night as yeah. well because uh, you know for all the reasons you're talking about, Nick. You know, he puts that extra time in. He knows his role. He and I had a great discussion after skate yesterday, and and we talked about uh, helping the guys with faceoffs. And you know, one of the questions I had for him was he was working with uh, Maddie Beneers, and and I said it looked like you guys were working on. Uh, speed work with your sticks. I said, why not use your body? Why, why not? Why not make him face the, your phys- physical stature? You know, in the face off. And he's, you know, he basically said it's because he's got to be fast. He's got to be fast with his stick. Yeah, he's going to get get guys using their body in the face off. But if he's faster, he can beat any big guy in the face off. So that's what he wanted to work. And I just thought this is a guy with so much experience that's making these other centermen better. 
it's nice to see him get rewarded. No, it wasn't an easy goal, but it's nice to see him get on the score sheet with a goal last night. So I was real happy for that. And of all the players that score, when a role player or a great guy gets yeah. on the board, that's when the bench really explodes yes. and everybody yes. really gets to feel uh, really, really great. Um, and what led to that goal was an impressive read from Vince Dunn. Right. Short-handed, a defenseman getting involved in a two-on-one where he made a great read after some outstanding pressure from Alex Wenberg, who had a great stick. He forced a turnover in the neutral zone, and then Dunner saw it. He read it. It was like instinct. Boom. Grab the puck. Go two-on-one. And it was an intentional shot pass right off the pad, the POP, to put Belmar in a great position. Uh, and that was a big-time assist, second assist of that period for Dunner. Three points, yep. plus three, four shots, almost 23 minutes played. What would you think of 29 on the back end last night? Yeah, I thought I thought that he quarterbacked the game so well last night, both in the power play and, and, and in the situations where he, he notched points on, on the score sheet. I, I think that he's a guy that, that has a quiet intensity about him. Um, you know, he's not going to be the guy that, uh, you know, th- throws the big open hi- ice hit. But as you said, he sees the game through an extra set of lenses that not many players have. And when you're a defenseman, that, that, that's what you want because you are the, the last line of defense back there. You see the entire game going on in, in front of you. And he's so good at getting to positions where he's ready to receive a puck or getting to the puck to a position where he can get a, a line on a pass that maybe he couldn't have had he not moved. And so that's where a lot of his value comes in. Obviously, the goal he scored was a heavy slap shot mm-hmm. he put on net, mm-hmm. um, and you love to see that as well. But he's just as valuable at what he does with the puck, how he distributes it, distributes it uh, as much as he is with that heavy shot. Talk about earning value, climbing the ranks, earning a little cachet. Ty Cartier did that last yeah. night. Oh, yeah. yeah. Aside from just the goal in which he went hard to the net, threw on the brakes, strong bottom hand yep. off of a great feed from Maddie. It was good to see him getting on the board, too. And then Jared McCann takes a hit. Yep. And Ty Cartier stands up for him and goes and fights Brendan Lemieux. I mean, that's that's how you earn respect in the dressing room. What do you think of Ty's game last night. Yeah, in, in much the same way I felt about Belly, I, I felt uh, uh, a father's pride. Yeah. No, I'm not a father of Ty Cartier, but you feel that pride yeah. in seeing a kid that that's trying to crack a pro lineup. He does. He's on the fourth line, and and you know you see him working real hard with with uh, Belly and Yammers out there, and he's getting some success. And he's mm-hmm. playing his game. And then there needs to be a bit of a shift in the lineup, and he gets an opportunity to go out there with Ebbs and and, 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 and Maddie. And he looks like he fits on that line. He doesn't play with that line normally, but he fits. And 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 Beneers, who you know hadn't really seen a lot of the score sheet l- lately, sees a guy that's that that's battling down the middle to get open and spins around and says, "I can hit that tape." And he put it right on his blade, and yeah. and, and, and Carts finished it. And and so I was so happy for him to to get that goal and get some success with that line. Um, he'll settle back into his fourth line, I'm sure today, but. Uh, that, as you said, that 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 gets you a ton of respect from the team. And then what he did with Lemieux as well. Listen, in, in real time when that happened, I thought it was just a bad, bad timing that Lemieux went over top of McCann. But watching it in replay a couple of times, I thought, no, he didn't look like he tried to avoid him. And I think that's the way Cart saw it as well. And when the time was right, you know, he took took care of things and made Lemieux pay his tab. Yeah, I, and you know, a young guy like that, seeing him come up from the fourth line, and, and you're right, just slot right in. Mm-hmm. That makes you very hopeful. Um, and makes you a little more comfortable, I think, with 
this team has been a little snake bit by injuries um, the first few years. Yeah. And so having a guy like Cartier that can, you know, move pretty quickly um, to a different line and it's really just like he's been there all year. That's mm -hmm. really, really nice to see it. And I think any, any good fan will see that and say, Oh, we have four complete lines. This yeah, is going to be right. a team that's going to go far. Yeah. And the injuries will happen. I mean, we hope that they're kept to a minimum. Mm -hmm. Um, when players miss time, it's necessary to have players fill roles, and I love the versatility that Ty brings. Right. Let's not forget, this guy won American Hockey League Rookie of the Year last yeah. year. Almost 30 goals, yeah. so he knows how to score. It's the type of guy that you're playing on your fourth line who's going to bring some offense to the fourth line in a perfect world when you have a full complement of forwards. And obviously him getting bumped up last night was a result of Jaden Schwartz right. leaving the game after after blocking a shot uh, to one of his legs. And But to have that versatility, Grant, that you're talking about, I mean, that is invaluable, and it's it's been really, really awesome to see. And then when you do that and you perform and you produce, you earn trust. Yep from yeah. your head coach and it's pretty clear that whether talking about him in the media or putting him in certain situations that Dave Haxtell's got a good amount of trust in Ty Cartier and I wouldn't be surprised if at some point maybe we see him a little bit more on the penalty kill too mm -hmm. he was killing some penalties yep. in the preseason so to have that speed and tenaciousness as well as kind of some offensive upside on the PK that's certainly a, a really good thing uh, for what Ty's able to bring how about your thoughts Al, on the division this year, a um, couple teams that are looking to take a step. You got yep. some teams that are in rebuild mode. You got Vegas and, and Edmonton that are vying for a Stanley Cup, and anything less than that is kind of a failure yep. of a season. But aside from just how the first four or five games of each of these teams have, have shaken out, uh, what do you think about the Pacific Division and the National Hockey League this year? Well, I'll tell you, it seems like it's being talked about a lot more than it has in past seasons. It, you know, it feels like we've gone through uh, three, four, five years of uh, Pacific Division's kind of an afterthought. And now, and maybe it's primarily Edmonton, but but now it, it, it's probably one of the strongest divisions out there. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, you, you credit uh, the Vegases and, and, and Edmontons. And I, and I think even what Seattle did last year with their 40-point turnaround uh, for a lot of that, that sentiment that's get, that the Pacific Division is getting. So um, it's, it's going to be strong. Uh, the, you know, who comes out of it at the end of the season, uh, it's too early to obviously make mm -hmm. predictions, although everybody does. Uh, but it, it's going to be a battle, and, and I love the strength in it. And the big picture for this team, I think a great way um, to kind of encapsulate what maybe the expectations are. You brought up the 40-point increase yeah. from last year, the single greatest uh, jump from a team's first year to their second year in NHL history, eventually getting to 100 points last year. Big picture expectation-wise, what do you think for the Kraken taking into consideration what they did last year and, and what the rightful expectations should be for this team and where they want to finish and where they want to get to by the end of the season? There's no reason why this team shouldn't be in the playoffs again this year. Uh, you know how they fit into it uh, remains to be seen, but uh, this this isn't a fall off year. This isn't a uh, you know a, a cup or die year. This is a uh, a playoff year. Um, I don't think they they care that much how they get into it, but they expect to get into it, and I would expect them to to, uh, to be in the playoffs again this year. Uh, last thing on the roster, 
Has there been anybody that now that you've been able to watch more? Yeah. Um, both obviously keeping an even closer eye during the games, but now being at practice. Yeah. Any player specifically that has caught your eye and been like, he's even better than I thought, or he does this, this, and this that I didn't know he could do, or now that you're kind of around the guys and obviously on the road as yeah. well, getting to interact with them. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we you know, we don't have to talk about carts anymore. I, mm. I've got a man crush on him. I, I, lo- I love his game. <laughs> I, I, I like to see more of it from other players. But, mm. but uh, you know, the quieter guys, a guy like Adam Larson, you know, um, I, I read a stat last night on the broadcast that, that he and, and, and Alexiak had uh, have the two highest combined uh, blocked shots and hits in the, in the league so yeah. far this year. Like stuff that's really quietly near the top, maybe in the top three on the on, on the stat sheet, or in this case at the top that doesn't get talked uh, talked about a lot is just an indicator of the kind of game these guys play, and and, and a lot of a lot of what has to do with the identity of the team. Now, do I think that there are areas that that need uh, some tweaking? Yeah, I, I I'd like to see more physicality from this team. I thought last night. Um, a guy like Yanni Gord, like who loves to drive wide and take the puck to the net and whatever happens, happens. I think that's great early on in the game. I like to see more of that, not just from Yanni, obviously, but from other players. I think Karts does that, does that as well. Uh, he might just take it right down the middle rather than going wide, but <laughs> nevertheless, he gets there and creates some chaos. I think that chaos is valuable early in the game and it pays dividends l- later on. And I think that needs to be a part of the identity of the team and, and, and so, yeah, a guy like Larson, pretty quiet guy, but but getting the job done out there. Um, let's see, Yammer, I like his game out there. I mean, I, listen, I was a third, fourth line guy for a lot of my my, my time, and I and so I respect those guys out there that mm-hmm. you know maybe it doesn't come as naturally to them as others, and and they've got to put the extra time in. Those are the guys that stand out to me. Yeah. Well, Al, as we start to wrap it up, uh, would love to get your thoughts on kind of the schedule upcoming where you got the New York Rangers next game. Yeah. Stanley Cup contender for sure. Then you got the Detroit Red Wings on the road. You go on the road for a few games. Then Carolina again, you yep. know that they're going to want a little bit of revenge, yes. right? That's yes. going to be a revenge game type for yep. them. And then yep. the Florida Panthers, so we know what they did last year in a great season that they had and the Tampa Bay Lightning, who with or without Andre Vasilevsky, uh, you can't ever count them out. Uh, not exactly an easy month. No at all and it's going to continue to get even more difficult as they go out on the road um but from what 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 you've seen so far um what's your thoughts on just kind of the upcoming schedule yeah you know you got five games there you got to new york at home and then you got four on the road Mm -hmm. the way i think about it is you've got to approach these next five games in in 48 hour increments yeah meaning uh we're less than 48 hours away from uh, the ranger game tomorrow night what are you doing to prepare for that as a player? What are you doing in the locker room? What are you doing on the on the ice? And then once that game is over, you shut it down and you reset and you start looking towards the next game. Because the last thing you want to do is go, we got five in, in X number of days and yeah. it's going to be a long road trip. And, you know, what if, what about this guy that's injured or struggling or who's playing it? You can't think about it that way. You've just got to think about five individual games this is what i always tell my son who's getting into golf is don't think about it as 18 holes think about it as one 18 times and forget about the last one go on to the next one and i think that's the same mentality here is is that yeah it's a grind but you break it up into those five 48 hour increments and it's just rinse and repeat each time and and depending on what the outcome is whether it's a win or a loss forget about it move on to the next one and get ready to go do it again and, and and come up with two points Al Kaniski, man, it is 
a pleasure to have you as Thank part you. of the broadcast team. Uh, you bring immense value um, with your insights, how you carry yourself, how you treat others. Um, I got all the time in the day for that. And so thank you for your time. Um, thank you for doing a great job like you have uh, alongside Everett, calling the games on the radio side, and I hope to have you back on soon. But uh, it's been a tremendous add to, to have you on the broadcast team now, and thanks a lot for your time for coming on. Anytime. Happy to be here. All right, Al. Signals from the Deep is the official podcast of the Seattle Kraken, hosted by Nick Olchek and produced by me, Grant Beery. Have a question for Nick? Leave a voicemail on the Signals from the Deep hotline at 206 206- 279-7810 or send an email to signals at seattlekraken.com. Your question could be featured on an upcoming episode.